Let's pray together. Our great God, Lord, as we come to the time where your word is preached, God, we pray, Lord, that you would give our pastor your words, God, that the truth we find in it, Lord, would be what we remember today. God, we pray that you would use your word to edify your saints. God, that you would use your word to call sinners to yourself and that today would be the day of salvation for the lost among us. Lord, we pray that you would give us focus. Lord, that we would we would have our full attention on you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. To Mark chapter 2. I feel like this is my first day here. I forgot to put on the microphone. Bear with me. I apologize. Okay. Matthew and our crew were prepared. The battery is ready to go. I just didn't bother to put it on. All right. Mark chapter 2. As we continue the exposition here, have in, have in your minds what Mark laid out for us as one of his primary objects or his primary purposes from the very, big, very, very first verse of his letter. And that's to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the Son of of God. He is not merely a teacher. He's not merely a rabbi. He's not merely a healer of men. He's not merely a physician. He is nothing less than the eternal Son of God. And we've seen that already. It's sort of in, in an increasing intensity. One, we saw this with, with the kind of authority that he had when he taught that the people marveled because this was not like the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. We also saw him healing people of various diseases. We saw him casting out demons. Then we saw not just diseases in general, but in particular, a leper being healed. A disease that was widely known as having, there was no way to heal this except by God alone. And then, of course, the healing of the paralytic, which was accompanied by this astonishing pronouncement that his sins were forgiven, which, of course, only God can do. And then last week, seeing the calling of Matthew, in which Jesus not only forgives those who are humble and penitent and seeking him out, but one who was at the tax booth, who was still actively engaged in his sin when Jesus came to him. But what happens is we see all these kinds of things, the response by some is belief and faith, but for others, what is the response? It's controversy. Rather than rejoicing at what they're hearing and what they're seeing, they respond with enmity. And we see that carried out again today in our passage. We're looking at verses 18 through 22 in Mark chapter 2. And what we see here is the 
the people of God now, or not the people of God, the people, the crowd has been stirred up in a way by the Pharisees. Interestingly enough, you remember last week when Jesus was inside Matthew's house eating and dining with tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees did not confront Jesus directly. What do they do? They confronted his disciples outside. And here, once again, they don't come to Jesus directly. They don't come to his disciples directly. They send people to come to Jesus. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very cowardly approach. It's a passive-aggressive, to use more contemporary language, kind of approach to the problem. But what we have here is we're going to see, I'm going to break this into three parts just for our organizational purposes. One, we see a faulty accusation. And I'm going to distinguish, it's not a false accusation, it's a faulty accusation, and there's a difference. Secondly, let's consider the Lord's surprising answer. Now, the answer really shouldn't be surprising to us, but to a first century hearer, no doubt, it was a surprising answer. And we'll look at the reasons why it was a surprise. And then thirdly, some ongoing implications of what Jesus says. The way that Jesus responds to their faulty accusation has ongoing implications for the people of God. So a faulty accusation, the Lord's surprising answer, and ongoing implications. If those of you who want something simpler by way of outline, if you want some alliteration to help you remember it, accusation, answer, and application. Accusation, answer, and application. Let's read the text together. The title of today's sermon is Unshrunk Cloth and New Wineskins. Jesus answers their question with a parable, twin parables. And we need to understand what he means by those. So let's hear now the word of God together, beginning in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from, from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Well, no doubt his answer would have come across as somewhat cryptic to those first hearers. In fact, it has perplexed commentators up to our day. Uh, I don't think it's as complicated as some have made it out to be, but we want to explore this. So let's think about first, what's the nature of this accusation? It's a faulty accusation. And again, I want to distinguish between faulty and false. If I were to, to name one of you or point to one of you at this point and, and accuse you of the JFK assassination, well, that could be demonstrably and easily proven as false, right? It's a charge that has no merit in fact. But if I were to do something different, accuse one of you of saying, you, you really should have sold, you're guilty because you haven't sold all of your possessions and made it community property of the church. Well, see, that's a faulty accusation. Not because it was false that you haven't done it, because it, it's based on, upon a faulty premise. You have no obligation to do that, 
Therefore, it's a faulty accusation. You're being accused of something for which you have no obligation to perform. So it's a difference between a false accusation and a faulty accusation. And the Pharisees here, and it's interesting that they're joined at this unique point with the disciples of John. And as the text goes, they're fasting. And and very likely, they're probably fasting on this very day, which is why it becomes a matter of urgency to them. But I think implied in the text is that they have stirred up other people to go and to make this faulty accusation. And it's faulty for a couple of reasons. It's faulty for a couple of reasons. Number one, the Pharisees and John's disciples were not practicing the Mosaic law. They're not practicing the Mosaic law. So listen to their their accusation. And, And you know the difference between a question and an accusation, right? And we can do this sometimes even with one another. Husbands and wives can do this. Brothers and sisters can do this. Friends can do this with one another. Sometimes we ask honest, humble questions. Other time we veil an accusation as a question. Well, that's what is being done here. Why is it, the people ask, that your disciples do not fast? See, this this is not just a question. This is an accusation. What's the accusation? That they are deficient in some way according to righteousness, according to religious devotion, according to holiness. And this was quite the accusation because Jesus is, was a rabbi who had a following. And the idea was, you are responsible, rabbi, for this moral deficiency in your people. You're responsible. And so when people come and ask him, the Pharisees fast, The disciples of John fast, but why do your disciples not fast? This is not a question, it's an accusation, and it's a faulty one. And the premise is is faulty because John's disciples and the Pharisees were not obeying the Mosaic law. Why do I say that? They had added man-made rules to their religion with respect to fasting. And, and they, the Pharisees in particular liked to flaunt this fact, but they were not following what God had given to them. Do you know how many times, or in the Old Testament, do you know what the requirement was for a Jew with respect to fasting? How many times in the course of a year was a faithful Jew commanded by God, by Moses, to fast? The answer is once. One day only. Out of 365 days, they were to fast one day on the Day of Atonement, the day in which the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and offer up a sacrifice for himself and for the people. On that day and that day alone. But by this time in history, the Jews primarily had taken up the practice of fasting twice a week. Nowhere did God's word require that. This is the doctrine of men, the commandments of men in their zeal to be very careful in their obedience to God. But also Jesus sees through this. There was another kind of zeal that they had as well. It had nothing to do with devotion to God. They had a, they had a zeal to be seen publicly as righteous. In fact, Jesus, a couple of different times, calls them out on this. In Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells the, the people, he's, in his sermon, he's saying, When you pray, 
don't pray like the hypocrites who do it publicly so that they can be praised by men. When you give, don't give like the hypocrites so that they can be praised by men. When you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. They had the, they had the applause of men. That was their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Moses said fast one day a year. The Pharisees said, we'll do it twice a week, and we'll make sure everybody knows we do it. At another time, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable. And he says, there were some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Does that sound like what we're seeing here in Mark chapter 2? There were some who viewed themselves as righteous and looked at others with contempt. And this is the parable that Jesus told. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all that I have. And his list goes on. Jesus recognizes the hypocrisy. He calls him out on that. And what we find here in Mark chapter 2 is a faulty accusation built upon the same kind of hypocrisy. Now, I think he makes a distinction. I think there's some clues in the text. He makes a distinction between the Pharisees and John's disciples. By this point, John was probably already in prison, and there was probably good reason that his disciples were fasting in mourning or out of concern for their teacher. But even still, their agreement and cooperation with the Pharisees on this question could not stand. It was a faulty accusation. But there's a second reason it's a faulty accusation. It's a faulty accusation, first of all, because Moses didn't command them to fast twice a week. But it's a faulty accusation for this other reason as well, because it's this, righteousness before God never, never had depended upon external religion. Even under the Old Covenant, righteousness did not depend upon external ordinances, but upon inward holiness according to God's Word. That's confirmed for us when you read through, for example, the book of Hebrews. The apostle there corrects some of the thinking. It says all of those things, all the ordinances, all of the sacrifices, all of the displays of religion in the Old Covenant were signposts. They were types, they were shadows that pointed to Christ. In fact, many times the Lord actually condemns his people in the Old Covenant for their outward displays of righteousness, their, their religious expressions that were not accompanied by an inward reality. It did not come from hearts of faith. So here's just one example. In, in Jeremiah chapter 14, in verse 11, the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. So the idea was an offering, a burnt offering given to the Lord in true faith, the Lord consumed that offering. 
But instead, the Lord says, I'm going to consume my people. Because they're not offering these things in faith. These are merely external things. And they have no bearing whatsoever upon their righteousness. In fact, in Amos, it says, the Lord says, I, am, I loathe these things. I hate them with my whole being. And the Lord uses very strong language. Alexander McLaren makes this observation. He says, we note the great principle that outward forms must follow inward realities and are genuine only when they are the expression of states of mind and feeling. That is a far-reaching truth, ever being forgotten in the tyranny which the externals of religion exercise. Let the free spirit have its own way and cut its own channels. Laughter may be as devout as fasting. Joy is to be expressed in religion as well as grief. No outward form is worth anything unless the inner man vitalizes it, and such a mere form is not simply valueless, but may quickly become hypocrisy and conscious make-believe. See the problem? We have a faulty accusation. Because, number one, it was not in accordance with the law of Moses to begin with. And two, because it was not accompanied with any real zeal for holiness, it was about outward displays. But implicit in their accusation is, Jesus, your disciples, your followers, are deficient in their holiness. They are deficient in their their devotion to God. They are lacking true piety. But it was a faulty accusation. Now, let's think about the answer that the Lord gives. We have the, the accusation happens in verse 18, but the rest of this paragraph is devoted to our Lord's answer. Look again at verse 19. Here's the Lord's surprising answer. The Lord's surprising answer. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, this is a surprising answer, and it's a surprising answer for a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus takes the emphasis away from Moses. Now, categorically, that was contrary to the thinking of any Jew. Even a faithful, God-fearing Jew would have looked to Moses, because that's the law and the covenant. But Jesus takes the emphasis off of Moses and puts it where? On himself. This would have been shocking. And I think we, we can fail to see that, how, how revolutionary, how shocking this is, that Jesus directs the attention away from Moses and onto himself. The parable of the bridegroom demonstrates that something fundamentally has changed. See, Jesus could have given them a very, a very clear exegetical answer. He could have gone to Leviticus and exegeted the text and showed them that the Day of Atonement was the only day on which fasting was required. Guys, get out of here there's, your charge is faulty. But he doesn't do that because he has a greater theological point to make. As the kingdom of God is breaking into this age, he has already declared 
Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And as this kingdom breaks into this new age, he's, he's teaching the people something has shifted, something tectonically has changed. What has changed? The promised bridegroom has come. You know, it's interesting, and even in our, our Old Testament reading this morning, in Isaiah 62, one of the lines there is, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. See, Jesus is picking up that imagery through, that, that happens throughout the Old Testament. And he's saying, I am the bridegroom. The parable of the bridegroom demonstrates that, that something has shifted. There is now in Jesus Christ a new and better Moses. A new and better Moses. And at the pre, in the presence of this bridegroom, fasting is not an appropriate response. It's just not an appropriate response. Now, in the ancient Near East, wedding feasts would often last for a week or more. And they were large, expensive endeavors. I mean, you can only imagine to bring in family and friends from all over the place and to, and to exercise hospitality, provide hospitality for those travelers. And then in our day, to have a wedding reception. And even if you're just doing cake and hors d'oeuvres, it's expensive. If you're doing a whole meal, it's even more expensive. Well, to do that for days and days and days. And in the midst of such a wedding feast, to have a guest to say, I'm fasting, I don't want to participate in this. What kind of insult would that be to the host? Who's made all these preparations, all these provisions, and this is what Matthew Henry points out. It's one of, the, one of the many reasons why Delilah with Samson, remember their whole week-long wedding? She wept at his feet every single day. Now she's trying to manipulate him. But it was just inappropriate to be weeping at your wedding. It's a time for celebration, not a time for mourning. And Jesus says, because I am here as the bridegroom, fasting doesn't work. It doesn't fit. It's not suitable. Now, and I think he, he, it's, there's, a, there's a hint here that this is most likely for the particular benefit of John's disciples. And I think it's a benefit for John's disciples because their own teacher, John, had alluded to this very thing. Right? John had called Jesus already, had referred to him as the bridegroom. In John chapter 3, we read this in verse 28. You yourselves are my witnesses, this is John speaking, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. So surely the disciples of John would have immediately, when they hear Jesus saying the bridegroom is present, they would have immediately thought, John has told us about this. We remember him talking about this. And the fact that he's in Herod's prison doesn't change that reality. So Jesus is saying, it's not appropriate. Fasting isn't, not only is it contrary to the law, or not in, in exact keeping with Moses' law, but it's not appropriate at this hour. Fasting was always associated with lament, with grief over sin, with a health issue, with, with something that needed the special intervention of God, it was not a, you didn't fast on the days of joy and celebration. Did they ever fast after a great military victory? Well, no, that's a time of feasting. McLaren, once again, he says, the name 
the name that Jesus incorporates, bridegroom, tells us that Jesus claimed the Psalms as the bridegroom, as uh, the Psalms of the bridegroom, as prophecies of Himself, and claimed the church that was to be His bride. It speaks tenderly of His love and of our possible blessedness. So Jesus shifts the image around for them and says, "Why would you fast when the bridegroom is present?" It would have been a surprising answer, and especially to Jewish leaders, to see Jesus direct attention to himself in this way instead of Moses. But there's another reason. There's another reason this is, the answer is a surprising one. And, it's, and it's, this is fleshed out in the parables that he gives about the unshrunk cloth and the new wine and the old skins. It's surprising because what he's communicating to them is that the old covenant is not sufficient to contain the glories of the kingdom of God, which is being revealed. The glories of the new covenant, the glories of the kingdom of God are being revealed, and the old vessels of the old covenant simply can't carry that freight, can't carry those things. So in these brief parables, we find an answer from, from the Lord that maybe at first appears a little cryptic. I mean, what is... Shrunken cloth and patches and wine and wineskins, what does that have to do with this whole question of fasting? But his words, I don't think, have to confuse us. He's teaching that the outside-in kind of righteousness that the Pharisees were seeking, the kind of religion practiced by the, the Jews, was completely insufficient to contain the glories of the kingdom of heaven. Let's think about the images that he gives. In verse 21, he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. <clears throat> now, in our more modern era, we, we don't really have a sense of this. Unless you're working with raw fabrics, you don't really understand this. In fact, most of our newer fabrics are synthetic or at least blends, and they don't shrink a whole lot. Uh, I remember uh, in high school, this has been a while ago, I, I worked retail clothing. And we had to learn about fabrics and what, you know, when customers were buying a shirt or something. Back then, it was a bigger deal. What would shrink and what didn't? In fact, we had an entire wall that was, I'm not exaggerating, at least the length of this wall, with blue jeans stacked floor to ceiling. And maybe some of you remember the old shrink-to-fit Levi's. It was raw, made with raw denim. And if you wore a size 34 in the waist, you had to buy something that was about a 37 or a 38. If you needed a 34-inch length when you were done, you needed to buy something that was closer to 40 inches in length. So it did you no good to try to try them on in the dressing room. It would look like a child wearing his father's clothes. But you turn them inside out, you put them through the washing machine, and that raw fabric would shrink dramatically and fairly predictably. Now, jeans today are made with pre-shrunk fabric. It's not that the fabrics don't shrink. It's that it's done ahead of time. It's that the consumer's not doing it. But that was not the way it was in the ancient Near East. If you had garments of linen or wool or any other natural fiber, when they, when they got wet for the first time, they would shrink. And so the image is, if you have a, a garment that's already been shrunk and you've got a hole in it, let's say you've got a, a three-inch hole, and so you take a four-by-four four patch that's unshrunk and you sew it on there, when that garment gets wet, the patch is going to shrink and it's going to tear and make the hole worse than it was before. That's the image. 
And then he gives another image that's similar, another little mini parable. He said, you, you, no one also puts new wine into old wineskins. Well, the wineskin would have been made out of probably a goat bladder, and, and there was some natural elasticity in it up to a point. So if you put new wine into a new wineskin, as the wine fermented and as those gases permeated, and it could expand. But then if you took that, that old wineskin, which would be reusable, but if you put new wine into that old wineskin, it no longer had the elasticity necessary for it to expand. And as the new wine continued to ferment, what would happen? The wineskin would burst, and not only is the skin lost, but the wine also. Everything's wasted. Now, what does that have to do with fasting? What does that have to do? How does that answer the question? Well, Jesus says, first of all, that mourning at a wedding is inappropriate. It just doesn't fit. But he's also saying that unshrunk cloth as a patch destroys both the patch and the garment. New wine and old skins will destroy both the wine and the skins. And here's the message. The glories and the freedom found in Jesus Christ as revealed in the gospel of the kingdom, are far too much for that old system to bear. It won't hold it. And if you try to blend the two together, what happens? Both are destroyed. Both are destroyed. The Jews were clinging to a system insufficient for the kingdom of God that was, was dawning. And as you read through the book of Hebrews, you find this was by God's design. This was a feature, not a bug. The Old Covenant wasn't designed. It wasn't designed to carry the glories of the new kingdom. Paul says in Galatians, it was a tutor. The law was asserted as a tutor. It was an instructor to bring them up to the point of the gospel revelation in Jesus Christ. The liberating work of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the establishment of his kingdom is new wine and new cloth, the asceticism. The ceremonies, the, the cleansings, the rules, the strict physical denial of the body are old cloth and old wineskins. Now, in a, in a pretty vivid display of this, in Acts 15, we have a, re a recording of what's known as the Jerusalem Council. And what's happened is Gentiles were being grafted into the church in large numbers. They were hearing the gospel, they were believing it, the Holy Spirit was falling upon them. That was not in doubt. But what was now in doubt is, what do we do with the Gentiles? What do we, are they required to become Jewish in order then to be Christians? So things like, do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to keep all the law of Moses? And that was a, it was a real debate. And so elders from various churches met with the, in Jerusalem, and all the apostles were there, and there was some back and forth. And at one point, Peter stands up. Peter stands up and he says this, and God who knows the heart testifies to them. This is the Gentiles. He testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they also are. 
Do you hear that? The grace of the gospel has been poured out. And Peter says, on Jew and Gentile alike, there's no difference in how they've come to faith in Christ. There's no difference in how they've been reconciled to God. It is not through Moses that they've been reconciled to God, is it? It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Peter says, why are you putting God to the test? Not even putting your brothers to the test, but putting God to the test by putting upon them a yoke, a burden that neither we nor our fathers could bear this. I mean, Peter's looking around the room going, which one of you has ever fulfilled the law? Which one of you has done this? Which one of you has ever been made righteous before God by keeping any of these ordinances? Not one of you. Why would you do that to your Gentile brothers? Why would you add those things? They're not necessary. Christ has fulfilled those ceremonial and judicial laws. So the old wineskins and shrunk cloth of the old covenant simply would not, could not carry the glories of the new covenant mercies of God being revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have time to take an extensive look at it this morning, but I encourage you to go at home and read Hebrews 8 with that in mind. Go home and read Hebrews 8 and let that be a joy and a delight to your soul. Because what the apostle there is telling us, that it was, the old covenant was deficient. And that sounds almost sacrilegious for us to say that, doesn't it? Because it is God's law. It was, Paul calls the law perfect. It was good. It was holy. But it was not intended ever to create righteousness in the people of God. It was to show them their uncleanness. It was to show them their great need and to point them to the Redeemer that God had promised he would one day send. But that Redeemer is here. The bridegroom has come. Now is a time for celebration. See, outside-in religion, moralism, washing the outside of the cup and straining out gnats while swallowing camels will not bear the weight of gospel glory. It just won't carry that, that cargo. It will not bear the fruit of kingdom joy. Religion that is focused on self Religion that is focused on individual displays, and I'm choosing that word carefully, individual displays of righteousness, will fail to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every time. Corporate religion that focuses only on outward ceremonies will hinder the Great Commission, which is designed to focus on the glories of Jesus Christ and upon the outward call to unbelievers to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. our, Our job is to call unbelievers to taste and see that the Lord is good. If we give them a gospel of works, that's no gospel at all, is it? If we give them a gospel of duties, that's no gospel at all. The Old Covenant said very simply, if we want to distill everything down, we could say the Old Covenant says this, do this and live. The New Covenant, if we want to summarize and distill down, the New Covenant says Christ has done it, live in Him. See the difference? One says do this or you will die. The other says another has already done it for you. Believe in Him and live in Him. Individually, Corporately, religion that rests on outward conformity will burst like an old wineskin and it will spill the new wine of the gospel. 
Legalism will always shrink away and destroy both the patch and the garment. That's the point of the parables. How many people have been driven away from the gospel? How many people have been driven away from the church of Jesus Christ by well-intentioned but disobedient Christians who are adding to the word of God? See, that's the irony. That's the irony. As Jesus gets accused of allowing his disciples to be disobedient, who was the one who were disobedient? The ones who were adding to the word of God. The ones who were saying, the standard now, regardless of what Moses said, regardless of what God said, that doesn't matter. The standard now is twice a week fasting, and your guys are following short of that. So who was disobedient? The ones who moved the sacred landmark. The ones who added to the word of God. How many... How many have been hindered in their coming to the gospel because they saw Christians who flouted their scruples on matters that are indifferent to true faith? Christ was concerned with the souls of men, the maturity of genuine inside-out righteousness within his disciples. Now, does Jesus demand obedience to the moral law of God? Absolutely, he does. No question about that. No compromise on that issue. We should not ever surrender that point. So do not hear me. Do not hear me say that obedience to God is not important. Do not say in your heart that your own pursuit of holiness is a matter of indifference. It is not, friends. It's a very serious matter before God. That's not in question. But the problem is your tendency, is it's my tendency, to tack on extra rules things that might have been fruitful for me and say, well, now you must do that too. Or things that might be helpful for you to say, now my brother must do this. Or he's somehow less than or deficient. We want to add extra practices that God has not required and then make those binding on others. So let's think about some ongoing implications. Some ongoing implications. We had this faulty accusation. And I think we understand that now, why this was faulty. Because it didn't depend upon the law of Moses, and, and it, was, it was based on outward righteousness, which would never was never designed by God to produce an inward holiness. And in our, in our Lord's answer, by, by means of parable, he opens up greater issues than just the outward activity of fasting. See, this passage really isn't about fasting. That was a symptom of something much deeper. It really isn't about fasting. I'm going to say something about fasting here in just a moment. But that's not what the passage is about. That's not the point. And his parables, I think, make that plain, that the new cloth on an old garment, the new wine in an old wineskin, you're going to lose both. The wineskin will burst and the wine is lost. The patch is going to shrink away and the garment is ruined. So what are some implications? I'm going to give you three. Some some abiding implications that we as, as God's people need to wrestle with. First, we need to understand the correct place of what might be called spiritual disciplines for the Christian. What is the right and proper use or right proper place of particular activities, particular religious activities, 
we could include fasting on that list, but we could include other things too, couldn't we? Your, your daily quiet time, journaling, Bible reading plans, and again, even fasting. And we could make a longer list. But what is the proper place for those? The point of the passage, again, it's not fasting. The point of the passage is the Lord Jesus Christ and the overwhelming new blessings that are found in him, a righteousness that exists in him alone. But Jesus does assume here that after he is gone, there is an appropriateness for fasting. There is an appropriateness there. But then the question becomes, okay, so what are the New Testament commands with regard to fasting? Somewhat of a trick question. There isn't one. Not one single command in all of the New Testament commanding a believer to fast. Not one. Now, does that mean we shouldn't do it? No, not what it means. There are examples that we find that are helpful examples in the New Testament. I'll give you a couple of them. In, in Acts chapter 13, when the church at Antioch is recognizing the Holy Spirit's call upon Paul and Barnabas, and they are preparing to send them out, the text records that after fasting and praying as a church body, they laid hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them out into the mission field. Then in the very next chapter, when Paul had gone to places like Lystra and Iconium, back to Antioch and then back out again, and he got thrown out of those cities, but he went back and he established churches. And Luke records for us in Acts chapter 14 that after praying and fasting, Paul appointed elders at those churches in our own confession of faith. In uh, chapter 26, the chapter on the church, we, we confess that it's according to the mind of Christ that elders are, are to be appointed in the church and that the proper way for doing that is by prayer and fasting of the congregation. So, so we're, draw, we're drawing from that very pattern that we see in the New Testament. There's also in chapter 22 in our confession in paragraph 5, I'm just going to read that in part. It says, moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings. This is the chapter on worship. Solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. So there are times in the life of a church when fasting may be appropriate for the congregation. But not so that we can become more righteous. Not so that God would, would, would increase his level of pleasure in us but so that we could be more and more conformed to the mind of God and to be more and more unified with one another. There's another example in, in 1 Corinthians 7, at more of a, of a family level, Paul gives an exhortation to husbands and wives. And he's talking about conjugal rights. He's talking about the marriage bed. He says, don't deprive one another. He actually says it's, it's, it's robbery of one another to deprive one another. So the exception would be for a season of prayer and fasting by mutual agreement. So he conceives of there may be something within a, within a family that necessitates a, 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 a particular devotion to God. Again, not so that a husband and wife can then become more righteous before God. Or so they can become more pleasing to God in a way. Parents might be weeping and fasting and praying together over the soul of one of their children in a particularly a time of particular sin. 
there may be other circumstances in, in a home where a husband and wife say, we need, we, need to, we need to fast together and pray together. So we need to understand the correct place of these spiritual disciplines. They may be profitable for us at a time. So we think about fasting and can kind of argue out from there. Jesus says, after my departure, that fasting will be appropriate at times. And with that, other disciplines that we might employ might be helpful to us. Having a Bible reading plan can be a wonderful tool for you to help focus you and direct you and help plan out how you read the Scriptures. But then does that become the law? Does that become the mandate? Does that become the measure of righteousness by which you can look down your holy nose and say, well, I read through the Bible twice a year as opposed to my loser brothers and sisters who only do it once a year. Now, I'm being silly, but you, you see where this can go, don't you? Or, I'm up at four in the morning and I pray for two hours every day. Wonderful. Praise God you can do that. But does that become then the law and the norm for everyone else? Do you see how easy it would be for us to, to see things that, that God has made very fruitful for us? Maybe, maybe you love to journal and you love to write. And it's really helpful for you to reflect upon your thoughts with pen in hand or keyboard or however you do this. And then you say to another brother or sister, this is what you must do. In order really to be devoted to God like I am, these are the kinds of things you must do. And there are whole books, there's a whole cottage industry in evangelicalism about spiritual disciplines. And some of them may be helpful to you, but they're not law. And the moment we make them law, we are standing against Christ. Don't let anyone tell you that you are obligated in ways that the Word of God has not obligated you. And don't you dare, don't I dare, tell someone that they are obligated in ways that God has not made them obligated. We need to understand, I think that's an ongoing implication, isn't it? And sometimes that's easier than other times. And as we encourage and exhort one another with, with a whole wide range of things, as we seek to apply the things that we believe, we apply our doctrine in our, in our home, in our church, in, in the civil sphere. And there's a great temptation for us to say, because this has been successful for me, because this has worked well for me, this needs to be imposed upon others. Secondly, second implication. If we believe that Jesus is present with us as we gather under his ordinances on the Lord's Day, then is fasting appropriate here? And I think this leads us to, to a, real, a real need in our day. I think we need to recover a doctrine of feasting. We need to recover a doctrine of feasting. Jesus says very clearly, when the bridegroom is present, follow with me logically here, when the bridegroom is present, it's not suitable to fast. What do we confess about Jesus' presence with us when we gather together under the ordinances of the gospel on the Lord's day? We believe that in the person of his spirit, he is present with us. The bridegroom saint is with us. It's a time of feasting. I think we need to think carefully about this. How we think about the Lord's day do you know that God even commanded his people on occasion 
to eat and drink their tithe in joyful celebration of him. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Back to the law. Deuteronomy 14. This was not, and you know, in the, in the Jewish system, there were multiple tithes. So this isn't the rule for every tithe. But listen to this. In Deuteronomy 14, verse 22, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. What is God teaching his people by doing this? If you live in an agricultural economy, the practice is when you bring in a crop, let's say it's corn, and you bring in the corn and you save a portion of that corn for next year. That's your seed for next year. A certain part of your, your, your grapes, you have to save the seeds for next year. And there's a great temptation to say, I don't trust God that he's going to provide for me next time, so I'm going to hoard away some more. And God says, no, I want you to eat it in front of me. I want you to make, make joyful noise to me, share with the Levites, share with the widows, share with the fathers who don't have their own portion, and demonstrate to all of the world that your God provides for you. And that he is worth celebrating. Saints, as we come together on the Lord's Day, do we have that mind among us? This is a day of feasting. This is a day of joy and celebration. The people may, in that day may have been tempted to hold back their seed or hold back their livestock in unbelief that God would not provide next year. We need to recover this doctrine of feasting before the Lord. And, and, and with that comes a generosity, a, a, a greater capacity for sharing with one another. Not our least, but our best. You know, as we come together for the Lord's table, which is a spiritual feast, anticipating the time when all of us sit with no lack, no want of anything, we sit before our perfect triune God in the very presence of our Savior, and we eat at his table. The haves, the have-nots, the rich, the poor, the Jew, the Gentile, everyone eats together at the same table, lacking nothing. And, and when we look at the, the, the Lord's Supper, one of the criticisms that Paul had for the church at Corinth is that those who had were not sharing with those who had not. In fact, they were getting drunk. They, they, they were overindulging in both food and wine rather than sharing with those who did not have the means to feast 
What do we learn from that? I think this is worthy of our consideration. Again, not to put another law. This is not new rules. This is not an outward display. I don't want to contradict everything I've set up to this point. But I urge you to think about this. I've been giving this some thought myself this week. How do we put this into practice, for example, in our weekly fellowship meal? If this is a day of feasting and not fasting, how does that change how we think about, even think about our preparations for the Lord's Day and for the meal that we share together? Are we planning ahead? Are we seeking to, in a sense, bring our best? Are we seeking to demonstrate an eagerness to share with our brothers and sisters as a day of feasting, as a day of holy celebration to the generosity and the goodness and the gospel grace that we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do our outward actions testify to the generosity and the goodness of our God? So maybe, maybe ask yourself questions like this as, as you're making your preparations for the Lord's Day, as you're making your preparations for the fellowship meal. Is your thinking more of a fasting kind of mindset or is it more of a feasting kind of mindset? And again, that's not to impose upon you certain things. It's just to provoke you to think. If this is the Lord's Day, if the bridegroom is present with us, and this is a day of feasting, maybe your thinking needs to change. Maybe it needs to shift from the, the, the miserly thinking to the generosity thinking. Maybe it needs to be uh, of just simply, I want to participate more in this rather than other activities. I think there's an ongoing implication of the passage that we want to think about. And that's a recovery of the doctrine of feasting. Let me give you one more. One more ongoing implication or one more application. It's this. We, we must forsake any idea of righteousness obtained by external means. We need to cast this far from our minds that we are ever, ever, ever drawn closer to God, made more holy, made more righteous, made more reverent by our outward activities. I read one commentator this week. He says, God is more likely to hear and answer our prayers when we fast. Brothers and sisters, that's false. What, God, what makes God likely to hear our prayers? The righteousness of Christ, and that's it. The blood-dipped robes of Christ's righteousness is what, God, what, make God, what makes God hear our prayers. Not anything that we've done. Not anything that we could do. But how, how subtle does this creep into our thinking? Maybe, maybe for you it's not the fasting issue. Maybe it's something else. Well, I had my quiet time today, therefore I'm, I'm, I'm a better Christian today than I was yesterday when I missed it. Or my family devotions have been much more consistent recently. I'm a better Christian as a result. You see, we confuse cause and effect, don't we? We confuse the fruit of gospel grace with some sort of cause. Listen to Colossians 2. Paul's speaking to the Colossian church, and he's really pressing this point in because apparently there were those who were, had come to the church at Colossae and were saying, 
you've got to do certain things in order to be more pleasing to God. The, the church at Colossae was, was, was founded in a place, crossroads literally and figuratively in the Roman Empire, where all manner of idolatry and unrighteousness was going on. And so there were well-meaning but wrong Christians coming and saying to the church at Colossae, you need to, do, you need to obey the gospel, believe the gospel, plus. Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to the festival of, or a new moon or Sabbath days. These are a shadow of the things to come, but... The substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. Listen to what he says. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value, no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There may be things that are profitable for you. There may be things that are helpful to you. But they must not become a matter of law. They must not, you must not allow them to, to shape your thinking in this way, that I am more righteous, I am more holy, I am closer to God as a consequence of something I have done or failed to do. John Calvin commenting on this, he says, Let us first learn not to place holiness in outward and in different matters. And at the same time, to restrain ourselves by moderation and equity, that we may not desire to restrict others to what we approve, but may allow everyone to retain his freedom. As to fasting and prayers, it ought to be understood that calling on God holds the first rank in spiritual worship, yet that method of doing it was adapted to the unskillfulness of men and is justly reckoned among ceremonies and in different matters, the observance of which ought not to be too strictly enjoined. You hear what he says? Prayer is required. In fact, it's our food in, in many ways. He calls it the first rank in spiritual worship. But ceremonies have been attached to our prayers, and he includes fasting in that and said the observance of which ought not to be too strictly enjoined. So is Jesus teaching by his example and by his words that morality doesn't matter? No. Is he teaching the law of God is no longer important? No, not at all. Is he teaching that holiness is not necessary? No. And to use Paul's language, by, never, by no means may it never be. But Jesus is teaching that he's not come. He's not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill all of it. He's come to accomplish all that the law demanded for the sake of, of we who could not and did not and would never fulfill it. So there's no conflict between law and gospel. Conflict is between man-made religion and gospel grace. 
There's no controversy. There's no conflict between the gospel and the moral law of God. So the law of God does matter very much. In fact, the Great Commission tells us not only to make disciples, not only to baptize them in the triune name of God, not only to graft them into his church, but to teach them all that he commanded. So obedience is very important. But we have to obey the Lord by summoning sinners to the kingdom of God through the free offer of God's gospel grace through his Son. The gospel is not come and follow all these rules and you'll be made right with God. The gospel is come and believe that Christ has died for the sake of sinners, that God has raised him from the dead as an acceptable sacrifice that Christ has ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, and, and we stand under a promise that he will return and make all things new. And by his power and by the indwelling of his spirit, he's enabled us to do what we could not do before, progressively, increasingly, to obey his word. We must not shun the very sinners that Christ came to save and risk pouring out the wine of the gospel, as the skins burst. We must not think that a system of outward righteousness is sufficient to contain the glories of the gospel and the powers of the age to come. We must not seek to sew a new patch onto an old garment and lose them both. Amen? Let's close there. We'll pray and ask for the Lord to help us as we Prepare ourselves now for the, for the feast uh, that God has given to us in his own son. We observe the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we are thankful for your mercies. Lord, will you help us by your Spirit's convicting work to flee from anything that remains in us that we think draws us nearer to you, that we think of our own making can make us more righteous. Will you help us instead to think carefully about what your word does command of us, to seek to find our holiness in Christ alone according to the means that he has appointed. As we attend to the preaching and hearing of your word, and as we attend to hopefully meditating upon it now, that you will fill us with a sense of wonder, sense of joy, sense of gratitude at the redeeming work that our Savior has accomplished, at the perfection that is ours in him, and that you will teach us to respond appropriately with hearts filled with gratitude, hearts filled with generosity, hearts filled with joy at what Christ has finished on our behalf. May we praise you in him. Amen.